Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today's moment that Alex has chosen is from the Well-Tempered Clavier Book 2, Prelude Number 15. I think that when a piece of music ends and wraps up nicely, it's kind of a metaphor for peace and concord. If a piece sounds bad at the end, well, it's kind of a metaphor for chaos and disorder. But sometimes composers love to play with us a little bit, and a piece is about to come to its peaceful close, but then a twist is thrown in, kind of like a a plot twist in a movie. Sometimes these are palatable and sometimes they are a little bit annoying. But a really good composer will make them sound absolutely natural. The twist will happen. A deceptive cadence will happen. But then, just a bit later, the real cadence will happen and it will seem like, actually, the whole sequence of events was inevitable. The deception needed to happen to make the closing of the real cadence sound as good as it does. So I think that's exactly what's happening here in Bach's Prelude number 15 from the Well-Tempered Clavier, book 2. Now he wrote so many of these that it's stunning that they're all amazing. If we said this every episode, we'd start to sound boringly repetitive Christian, but Bach is quality and quantity, right? He wrote so much and it's all amazing. So... And this little unassuming number 15 from this book, well regarded as a classic of keyboard literature, but still, this isn't really one of the more famous pieces of this book. But what we have here is just this charming example of a deceptive cadence which really stuck out to me and which I picked for my moment today. The one that you just heard was from the A section of the prelude, but this prelude is in a binary form where it goes A and then B. In fact, it repeats both sections. So A, A, B, B. And for the B section, that's the one that I'm going to pick as my moment. But to give you some context, let me explain the one in the A section. And to get there, let's start right at the beginning. And here are these wonderful little, almost spidery, crawling, skipping little notes in the harpsichord. Now we're coming into what seems like it's about to be a cadence. Oh, oh, twist. Oh, there we go. Okay, so what happened there was... Well, that's what I'd expect there, but... Okay, that's interesting. That's not right. (laughs) That's not what I expected. But then, and then we fall back down into, back into the chord that we were hoping for there.
So the deceptive cadence works here because it doesn't, because it actually fits into the framework of what's happening in the piece. And these are all subliminal things that you would never think to listen for as you're hearing the piece because nobody wants to be simply counting in their mind the whole time as they listen to a piece. Uh, well, at least most people don't, I suppose. Although Christian, you and I, maybe maybe we like that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I still remember being a, a very young kid and doing that exact thing and just counting along with music. Uh, but here we have 16 measures. And if you count along with these measures, you can count in three beats for every measure. And all these little spidery notes, well, they're very fast, but there's still a beat that's happening, right? One and two and three and one e and a two e and a three, or one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, and you just keep counting on the downbeat the next consecutive number, and you will get to 16 by the end of this first A section. And the reason why the deceptive cadence works and why it doesn't feel like it's out of left field is because it happens at the end of the 13th bar into the 14th. So even though it sounds like, hey, why didn't that end there? Subliminally, you already knew that it couldn't end there because it's too early anyway. It's kind of like a twist ending happening in a movie, but you know that there's actually that's not quite going to be how the movie ends because this, this movie's not long enough yet, right? It still feels like it has a whole other thing to happen in the movie before it wraps up. very subtle, but it makes us feel that it's not over yet anyway, so it gives us a sort of sense of assurance that the little section will end properly. And yet, Alex, to add to the little bit of ambiguity of how many bars there have been by the time we get to 13 or 14, usually the first section of a piece of music here that has 16 bars is evenly divided into 8 and then 4 and 2, but I love it how this one is not. Right. The beginning is three and three. Right. That's true. That's a good point. One, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three. One, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three. But like harmonically, don't you think it still feels natural because he's got this G major thing going kind of for the first three bars. And then the fourth bar is D, which is the dominant. But then I guess... Oh no, you know what? He really is staying in the feeling of D for bars four, five, six. Yeah, that is cool. That's a good observation there. And one thing that I was going to point out, this is not actually remarkable, but it's it's typical, Which, but it's still good to point out, is that the cadence that I've been talking about at the end of these 16 bars, that is in the dominant key. So it's in the key of D. Whereas this started in G. And as you know from previous episodes, or if you know this music, the reverse will happen in the B section. The B section will start in the dominant key, which still doesn't really feel quite home yet. And it will end in the tonic or the home key of G. So that part he doesn't subvert, and he doesn't really subvert large-scale formal things like that in these works. And that's kind of what's so cool about this. You could think of it like, I'm using the movie analogy again, you could think of it like a genre picture, for example, 
where you might want to do like a fun riff on a heist movie or on a western romance movie or something you're going to do it a little bit of a different way but you're going to keep the form of the movie the same it's still going to have that three act structure with a pleasing finale and if you don't do that it won't really resonate with a large audience it could still have artistic value but it's not going to really ever be a huge hit as a movie because we need certain things formally in our movies i'm not talking about details I'm not talking about story details. I just mean the way the movie is formally constructed. And that's really how this music was, especially of this era, is very tightly constructed formally. So in order to stretch those bounds and to make interesting creative decisions in there, like the one you mentioned, Christian, with the three measure phrases at the beginning, the, the only reason that works is because they're put in this box, right? It wouldn't really be that interesting if there were three measure phrases if it was four sets of those and then we only had a 12 measure A section because then it would all be symmetrical again. But the fact that it's three and then three, which puts us a little off kilter for the for ending up at 16, especially with the deceptive cadence that I talked about that lands on measure 14, that just gives the whole thing this interesting wonkiness that doesn't pay off until you've heard that the 16th bar is over and your brain goes, oh yeah, okay, that's it. This is one of the powers of Baroque music, I think, in terms of how phrases feel. Because with classical era music, Mozart, it'll be like, phrase one, phrase one, phrase one ends openly. Phrase two closes at the end. And that clean delineation is not always at present in Baroque dance forms like this, even though the harmonic outline for them is very much already there. But they have a con continuity to them that I think is a little bit more interesting and compelling than just nice big stops at the end of everything. Yeah, and the B section typically is a little bit longer in these kind of things. And sure enough, it is here. I think this also goes to your point, Christian, is that he's able to stretch out a little bit here. He's not stuck in the same kind of feel that Mozart would have to do, where it feels like the, the little melodic phrases have to be a little more tightly conceived. And these, these are a lot freer, and he's able to just dance all around the keyboard. I'm sure Scarlatti was a big influence here uh, for Bach, another... Baroque era, Ital this was an Italian composer. And this kind of stuff, it's not that melodic, right? I mean, it sounds very noty. It's just all over the place. Da -da 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 -da. But of course, with Bach, as, as he always does, there's a melodic shape happening here, even though the notes might actually sound like this, for example. Of course, if you just delete those middle notes, the notes that are off the beat, it's... And then if you sort of spread that out a little. And for Bach, there's a bunch of notes on the page and not every one of those is a melody note and you just have to be good at performing this music for those to come out of the texture. The clarity of it, I think, is what really sells it on being an amazing piece and why it's had so much staying power. In the interview done by the performer, Christine Schornsheim, who recorded all of book two of this Well-Tempered Clavier, 
in a bunch of different locations, which are beautifully shot by the Netherlands Box Society. She talks about how the preludes and fugues, and especially the fugues, are sort of a form of music therapy because they make logical sense and they they center the mind in something that just works. It's kind of like if you're a math person and really love math, part of the psychological reason you might really love math is because it all makes sense every time, you know, <laughs> kind of unlike life, right? And so math might be your way to sort of cope with life. You know what I mean? It doesn't throw anything at you that is not understandable or figure outable, right? And for Bach, it's kind of like that with the Bach preludes and fugues. They're all very complex, but every single note makes sense almost mathematically. Yeah, counterpoint. And it brings a sense of peace when you think about it in that way. It could also be a little intimidating, but it's in the same way as when you look out at the uh, vast distance of you know interstellar space and see all those galaxies, and you can either be completely terrified by that. It's mind-boggling. You can't understand the scope of how many planets and solar systems and galaxies and just the vast scope. Or it could be a comforting thought, sort of optimistic resignation to the fact that actually Earth is pretty small compared to all this stuff. And that takes a little bit of the pressure off me as a person, doesn't it? (laughs) So it's like that with Bach. And also with the space analogy, math, the consistency and reliability of math has allowed us as humankind to do unbelievable things like send a, the Voyager 2 probe all the way out into interstellar space. Yeah. And that kind of thing, I mean, the Voyager 2 probe needed to be launched on a certain day at a certain angle because it had to use gravity assists from Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune and Uranus and all the way out. The path it took when it crossed Jupiter, the path it was in, had a margin of where it needed to be of just 150 kilometers wide. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. And the time it needed to be when it got there was within a few seconds. And it did, it was correct. It was one second late and something like a few feet off. And the fact that we could have predicted that with, you're right, Alex, It's something. there's something profound about the fact that there's a procedural tool that we can use to generate something and Bach was doing the same kind of thing with counterpoint because it was a level of trust. It, he was so good at that that he could basically plan that voyage every time. And it's not it's not like flying a plane or playing a video game because he doesn't even change and react with things in the moment because he doesn't have to because it just works because it's math. It's object. It's more it's, objective than that, it's, than that thing. Yeah, yeah. It's preordained almost. Yep. like a it's like a ticking clock and this piece really brings that metaphor home because the harpsichord sounds like ticking and the notes all sound exactly the same length when they're whether these these fast notes or not it's like it's just perfect symmetry and it brings us to our very final moment which is my moment which is that last deceptive cadence then what It goes into a diminished chord, kind of like it did before, but this time it's leading to the tonic key. But then, of course, what happens? We go back to where we were always ordained to go, right? 
It was inevitable, there was really no other way. Kind of like math. And now, here is that moment from the prelude number 15 from the Well-Tempered Clavier Book 2. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this piece, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of Prelude and Fugue number 15 of Book 2. You can find us on all the podcast apps. Please also find us on social media and give us a review. Give us a rate. Okay, Christian, what moment are we going to be talking about in next week's episode? We'll hear two moments from Bach's F major mass. Until next time, enjoy those moments.